0: Today's reading is from Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 9, and can be found on page 1177 of the Church Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your mother and father, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as, as, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew, for reading. Good morning. Good morning. Let me pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much for your word, and thank you for how you speak to us um, through it and for how it is relevant to our daily lives. Help us to see the importance of these verses that we're about to think about, and we pray that we'd um, put these verses and what you're teaching in these verses into practice in our lives by the help of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. I wonder if you've heard those words before. I'm from Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., a 19th century doctor and poet. I wonder what you make of them. Some people are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. Here's why I think his comment is misguided. I don't think we need to drive a wedge between being heavenly-minded and being of earthly good. And I think Ephesians helps us to see why. So at the beginning of the letter, in chapter one, verse 10, we learned that God is bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Interestingly what God is doing involves both heaven and earth so God isn't just concerned with one and not with the other and then we saw in chapter 3 verse 10 that God's work of uniting all things has already begun where in the church we see that we saw that the church here in the present we the church are the display case to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms of what God is doing in the entire cosmos. I hope we're beginning to see how, in a sense, Ephesians is both heavenly and earthly. Now, because the church has been called to play a key part in God's cosmic plan, at the beginning of chapter 4, we found Paul urging Christians, urging us to live a life worthy of this great calling that we've received. But what does living this worthy life look like? We've already seen that it involves being united with one another as believers. And we've seen how it involves building one another up by speaking gospel truth in love to one another. And we've also seen how it involves living differently from the world. In our previous sermon in Ephesians, Andrew uh, had a a ladder up here, and he helpfully showed us just how different a gospel-shaped society was from first-century Roman society. You see, Roman society was, was all about trying to preserve your place on the hierarchical ladder or trying to climb up to the next rung by pushing others down. And in Roman society it was acceptable to to despise those below you. Slaves and children in particular who were on the bottom rung were disdained by everyone else. Friends, how different that should be from a gospel society. One where you seek to serve and help others instead of despising them and using them. Now the vision... For this gospel society flows from Paul's instruction in chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I want us to note something that I think is quite helpful. The verb submit in the original is actually a a participle. So it doesn't say submit, rather it says submitting. The main verb is actually at the end of verse 18, and it's this. Be filled with the Spirit. That's Paul's main instruction. And here's why that's relevant. Submitting to one another, that is simply a way of being filled with the Spirit. Friends, do you want to live a life full of the Spirit? Then submit to one another. But how do we do that? So in our previous passage, um, we saw Paul begin to describe submission at home. Namely, in how wives ought to treat their husbands and in how husbands ought to treat their wives. And in this morning's passage, Paul continues to explain what submission looks like in the home. But this time, his focus isn't on the the husband-wife relationship but on the parent-child relationship. After that, he'll also teach us uh, what submission looks like in the workplace. Remember, all of this submitting to one another, this is just part of our being filled with the Spirit. Do you know how it's sometimes thought that to live a spiritful life means to have charismatic experiences? So maybe through uh, hearing God speak to us in our dreams, or speaking in tongues, or giving, or receiving prophetic words, or or seeing people healed. In Ephesians, what does it look like to be spirit-filled? It it looks like submitting to one another. Friends, do do you see how encouraging that is? It means that anyone can live a spirit-filled life. You don't need to have a charismatic experience. When you submit to others, you are living a life full of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let's live this life. Our first point is how to live spirit filled at home. Look at me at verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Paul tells us how to live spiritual lives. And it's by obeying. He tells children how to live their spiritual lives. And it's by obeying their parents. Now, I'm not sure that's what children want to hear, but it is what children need to hear. Now, why is it worth children honoring their parents? Have a look at verse 3 so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. What does it sound like Paul is saying? It sounds like obey your parents and you'll prosper and live to a ripe old age. Here's the thing though. As we know, not everyone who who obeys their parents achieves financial success, or lives into their 80s. So what does poor mean? In the ancient world, child mortality was extremely high. I read somewhere that um, up, to eight, up to 50% of children would die before their 10th birthday. You could argue that a child's chances of reaching adulthood would generally go up if they listened to their parents. That's pretty obvious, right? A parent can warn a a child not to eat, um, don't don't eat those poisonous berries. Uh, Don't prod the Rottweiler with a stick. Generally speaking, it's wise to listen to parents. And although this is obviously critical when you're really young, it doesn't mean that honoring your parents is something uh, you should just ignore as you get older. Adults can still learn from their parents. So parents can share some of the wisdom they've accumulated over the years and and help their children avoid making the same mistakes that they made when they were their age. Proverbs 17 says, gray hair is a crown of splendor. Now, I don't know about you, But I think think this message of honoring our parents is highly relevant today. Our culture despises any external authority, including that of parents. So our culture encourages us to, to listen to our inner voice, to listen to our hearts. It tells us that we can know something is right as long as it feels right. And it teaches us that because children have been far less molded or corrupted by society or other external forces or authorities than their parents have, that children shouldn't listen to their parents. Rather, parents should listen to their children and allow their children to discover themselves and make decisions for themselves. So I think this partly explains why, why some parents today choose to raise their children as babies. So if you were to ask these parents after they had a child, hey, is it a boy or a girl? They'd say something along the lines of, we don't know because they haven't decided yet. They'll, they'll decide their gender when they're older, should they wish to. That's an example of how parents today are increasingly loath to give direction or instruction to their kids. But here's what I think people often forget. Your children aren't as innocent as our culture makes them out to be. Kids can be little terrorists. And if you don't believe me, just ask, your, ask my parents about me. What I was like, children kick, hit, and bite. They nick each other's toys. And here's the thing, they don't need to be taught how to do those things. Those things come to them naturally. So children shouldn't be encouraged to just listen to their hearts. That can be very self-destructive. As we know, in the Bible, we learn time and time, time and time again that following our hearts is a recipe for disaster. So let's, let's not ignore all external authority. Despite what our culture says, external authority isn't always bad. You see, God made the world so that parents would not only produce children, but also raise their children. Sadly, the fall means that things don't always work out that way. But that is the ideal. Parents play such an important role in the raising of their children. So it is right that their children honor them. But how are parents to raise them? Have a look at verse 4. Fathers which could also be translated parents, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. How are parents to treat their children? Stu told me earlier that his favorite four words in the Bible are, children obey your parents. Parents. And his children's favorite six words in the Bible, our fathers do not exasperate your children. (laughs) So we are not to exasperate our children. We are not to provoke them. But how do you avoid exasperating your children? A former Harvard psychology professor says that parents should limit the number of rules that they have for their children. Notice that it doesn't say, hey, do away with rules. You shouldn't have any rules. He says, have them, but limit them. So he says, carefully pick which rules you're going to impose, be super clear about them, and then make sure you enforce them. If you have too many rules, your child's going to be discouraged, and it's going to be impractical and frustrating for you to try to enforce them all. It's a lose-lose situation. So limit the rules. The second thing he says is, Use minimal force. So if a disapproving look is enough to persuade your child to change their bad behavior, then you don't need to send them to a timeout. Use minimal force. Now those, those things are fairly obvious, but I think they're, they're useful. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What do you do, though, when you do end up exasperating your children? It's bound to happen, right? Probably pretty regularly. If it's your fault, then own up to it. Thankfully, you don't need to pretend that you're an impeccable parent. You're not. There's only one flawless parent, our Heavenly Father. So point your children to Him. He is the only one who loves His children perfectly. He's the only one who never lets His children down. Parents, the single most important thing you can do for your child is to teach them about the Lord. Start doing that while they're young. On a daily basis, seek to pray with them and and to read them stories from a good children's Bible. So children are to honor their parents, and parents are to raise their children in the Lord and not exasperate them. Friends, here's how we live a spirit-filled life at home. What about at work? We move on now to our second point, how to live spirit-filled at work. Have a look at me at verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. This verse sounds shocking to us, doesn't it? Is Paul condoning slavery? Before answering that question, it's worth asking, what was slavery like in first century Rome? So scholars are divided as to exactly how much of the Roman population was enslaved. But it's estimated that somewhere between one in three and one in five people were slaves. Sadly, it was extremely Widespread, and many people even volunteered to become slaves because it meant that they had food and lodging. Now the way the way slaves were were treated would differ greatly from one household to another. So it might have depended, for example, on what work they did. Some were given education and trained as doctors, teachers, writers. Others performed more manual labor. Now, we don't know the exact conditions of the slaves that Paul's addressing. But here's one thing we can know. Just because Paul is addressing slaves does not mean that he condones slavery. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul encourages slaves to purchase their freedom if they can. So what is Paul doing here? He's simply addressing a large chunk of the church. The truth is, many Christians in first century Rome were slaves. Just as Paul's encouraged people to be godly at home in their relationships with their spouses, with their children... With their parents, he also wants to encourage people to be godly in their work. And even though the type of work that we do today and our working conditions are very different from those of our brothers and sisters in the first century, it doesn't mean that we can't learn from what Paul says here. These verses are relevant to us because most of us are engaged in some form of work. And please bear in mind that work isn't what pays you, isn't necessarily just what pays you a salary. Work is also, for example, raising and looking after your child or caring for an infirmed loved one. So how do we apply these verses? There are two things I want us to notice. First, we are to do our work as though we were working for the Lord. So Paul says in verse 5 that we are to obey our earthly masters just as we would obey Christ. That sounds sounds a bit much, doesn't it? In verse 6 he says we are to be slaves of Christ. And then in verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. What does Paul mean when he says that we are to work as though we were working for the Lord? I don't think he means that, for example, if you work for Facebook, that you need to pretend that Mark Zuckerberg is Jesus. He's not. Rather, You know how the office tends to be a lot more productive when the boss is around? Paul is teaching that it shouldn't be that way. In verse 6, he says that we shouldn't only work well in the office when, when the boss is there because we know that they can see us. How many workplaces are like that? It's so common, isn't it? When the boss leaves, people slack off. But that shouldn't be true of us as Christians because that behavior doesn't glorify Christ. God created us to work, didn't he? And the scriptures condemn laziness. So Proverbs 6.6 says, Go to the ant you sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. It's tempting to be idle when your boss is not around especially, especially when that's what your colleagues are doing. When, when they spend more time going on fag breaks or coffee breaks than actually working, you might think to yourself, why should I slog away when they're slacking off? We're then tempted to think that our work, our hard work is in vain. We think that we've got, we've got nothing to gain, if our boss doesn't see the hard work we're doing. But Paul says, wrong. Do you know why you should work diligently? Look at verse 8. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Jesus Is our master. And he sees all of our work. So when you work hard and your boss doesn't notice it, that's okay. Jesus does. And he's going to reward you. Now, I think we can get a bit nervous about this idea of God rewarding us. Because we know that salvation is by grace through faith. And not by works. But this reward that comes from from our work isn't salvation. Because salvation isn't a reward. What is it? It's a gift that we receive from God. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 7, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. So, folks, the reward isn't heaven. Rather, it's something that you'll receive once you're in heaven. I think it's really important for us to be clear on that. If you're not a Christian, please don't think that you need to try hard to impress God to get into heaven. You cannot earn your way into heaven, it's impossible. None of us are good enough to do that. There's only one way you can be saved, and it's by putting your faith in Jesus. It's by trusting in Him. I encourage you to begin doing that today if you haven't already. It is the best decision you could ever make. And for those of us who are Christians, we need to bear in mind that just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that we can't also be rewarded by God. A father loves his children and is gracious to them simply because they're his children. But that doesn't mean that he can't also reward them for good behavior. So, folks, When it comes to work, let's work as though we were working for the Lord, knowing that we will be rewarded. Your work will never be in vain. Although our our work might go unnoticed by bosses, it will not go unnoticed by Jesus. He sees our work. And he sees our work, whether we replenish stock in a storeroom or whether we're The CEO of a company. This is why Paul addresses those in positions of authority in verse 9. You see, in Roman society, masters were allowed to treat their slaves like dirt, subhumanly. But that's not the case for masters who believe the gospel. They ought to treat those who work for them fairly with dignity. So Paul warns those in positions of authority, if you're the boss, remember that you also have a boss in heaven. He's watching, and he will not tolerate your use of of your position to mistreat others. Before God, we are all equal. So we can't pull rank on him. Do you see the difference between being spurred filled? Do you see? Yeah, do you see the difference that being spurred filled at work makes? Firstly, it gives you purpose. You're not working primarily for your line manager. You're working for the God who made you and loves you. And if you're a boss. Treating your workers with fairness and respect, well, that's going to facilitate a healthy work environment. I began this talk with the quote from Home Senior Some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. If we are heavenly minded, in the sense that we live spirit filled at home and at work by submitting to one another, then I believe that we will be of immense earthly good. We'll be better employees and better bosses. And we'll be better children and better parents. I think Home Senior was quite wrong. As we go about living spirit filled lives at home and at work, what are we doing? We're communicating to the heavenly realms and spiritual authorities that God's cosmic plan is well underway. What a beautiful calling we've received! Let's pray. Father, we have all sorts of ideas um, about what living a Spirit-filled life looks like. Thank you for this passage and for um, how it shows just how simple it is, in a sense, to live a Spirit-filled life. It's by submitting to one another. Father, we pray that you give us this desire to want to live this way, to want to live a life full of the Spirit at home and at work. Thank you that this is what you call us to, and thank you that this um, is, is good. Um, it's good for us. It's good for the world, and it communicates um, your powerful plan and how you are working in your people. Thank you for this, Father, and we pray that this week we'll be putting what we've learned from this passage today into practice with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.